Amen. Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn once again to uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 46. Genesis 46, page 39 in the Pew Bible. Last week we began looking at this chapter, the first four verses, and we'll continue today. I'll begin at verse 1, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Genesis 46, verse 1. Hear God's holy word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. <clears throat> then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yov, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah and Sirah, with their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, 
And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of An, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Girah, Naman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The son of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth. Even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, Every time I come to these long lists, these genealogies in Scripture, uh, I think, oh, man, (laughs) what could be more uh, boring? That's my first thought, than a long list of names. Is there any reason to read through this thing? Should I skip this long list of names? That's what a lot of us think when we're reading the Scriptures and we come to these genealogies and, and other long lists of names in the Bible. We've seen some already in the book of Genesis as we've been going through it. And here again, we have this long list of names of uh, the sons of Israel who went down into Egypt. I think we can safely say that these names are not boring to God. These names are important to God. These are the families and the individuals among God's people, people whose lives were significant. Remember, God said to Moses himself, I know you by name. 
And these names, the same could be said of each of them. These names are, are important people. These are individual, personal beings who are made in the image of God, each and every one of them. And they have dignity and value in God's sight because of that. There's a, there's a beautiful personalism that runs all the way through the Bible. God doesn't just deal with um, nations or clans or families, but also personally and intimately with individuals. Where we left off last week, Jacob was uh, on his way, beginning this journey, leaving the promised land, heading down to Egypt. He was so encouraged by the news that his son, Joseph, was still alive. He was eager to get on with that journey. But they stopped in Beersheba and worshipped the Lord. And that, as we said, was the last opportunity for God's covenant people to worship the Lord in the promised land before this time, this long time that they would spend in Egypt. And there, the Lord met with Jacob and confirmed to him that this move um, to Egypt was God's divine will. He told Jacob not to be afraid. And he reaffirmed his promise to him. He promised him, I will be with you. I will go down into Egypt with you. And there, in that place, I will make your descendants into a great nation. Even while they're in that place, even while they're suffering. And he affirmed his promise to bring them up out of Egypt again. And that was the promise of the exodus that would happen hundreds of years later. And then he also so sweetly comforted Jacob, this uh, old man who was near to his death. He comforted Jacob with the comfort that his heart longed for. You remember God told him, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. He's saying, your beloved son that you've been separated from for so long, who you hated to be separated from, he's alive and he will close your eyes when you die. What a blessing that was to this man as he was drawing near to the end of his days. What a compassionate and loving God we have who shows that kind of heart of uh, love and and mercy to his people, even to individual people. And really, everything he's doing here um, was kindness and mercy like that to his people Israel. Even though he's bringing them down to this foreign land and they're going to have to suffer so greatly there, this is great mercy and compassion to them. He's preserving them in that time of a deadly famine that had come upon the world. And he's going to bless them greatly. He's going to mold them and form them and multiply them into a, a great nation. And yes, part of that process is going to involve suffering. There's going to be a lot of suffering for them. Over 400 years of it. 
But it's through that suffering, through that adversity, that he's forming them and blessing them. And that's good for us to remember. That's exactly the way the Lord works in our lives. Through adversity, through suffering, the Lord is doing us good. He is forming us. He is building our character. He's changing us. He's transforming us. As Paul says in Romans 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the writer of the Hebrews uh, chimes in and says something similar when he says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is loving dealing with his people that the Lord is undertaking. He's doing it with Israel and Egypt. He was not wronging them. He's using these trials and sufferings as a way uh, to mercifully bless them and change them and build them up and accomplish his purposes in them and through them. We need to think that way about all our trials and sufferings as well. There's not one bit of trouble or suffering that comes into your life that the Lord is not going to use in that way if you belong to him. He never wrongs us. He always does all things well. And you should never, ever think of your trials uh, as some terrible thing that uh, is, is harming you or that you just have to put up with and, and get through, and then things will be better. No, know that the Lord is working good. Believe it by faith. Trust in him. Know that he is good always. He's using all things in his wise providence to bless you more than you can even imagine. And no doubt so that he can use you in ways beyond what you even imagine. In verses 5 to 7, we read here, the journey continued. Jacob set out from Beersheba and his sons carried him and their little ones and wives in these wagons. They took everything that they had on their way out of the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him. And, of course, we have that list of names, all those many names. Uh, And it, it does seem like many, many names. It certainly did as I was reading, and probably you as you were standing and listening. But it really is not a lot of names. And that's kind of the point here. This is a tiny little group of people at this point. Just a small little uh, flock of God, if you will. God is going to have to do an amazing work to keep his promises. His promises to make them into a great nation. This is just a handful of people at this point. They're going down as 70, but they will come out as a great multitude of millions. Remember God's great faithfulness to his promises. That is one of those great uh, examples of how God 
uh, made such great and awesome promises, and he fulfilled them in time, just as he said he would. He always keeps his word. That's something that we can count on. You can depend upon every word of God that he has spoken to us. That's why the scriptures are such a great treasure to us. They're completely true and trustworthy in the whole and in every part. James Montgomery Boyce points out uh, one thing here about all these people going down to Egypt together. Look at how unified they are. These brothers were not known in the past for being unified. They were um, quarrelsome. There was strife. There was jealousy. You remember, they were so jealous of Joseph in particular, they wanted to get rid of him. They sold him uh, into slavery in Egypt. But here we see the Lord has brought a change. We see them united with one mind, with one purpose, with one destination as they all go down to Egypt. None stayed behind. Despite the dangers that they faced, on the way, and once they got there, they were fully committed. And they were trusting God to preserve them according to his promise and to bring his promises to pass. You know, maybe we see a small picture here of the church and how it should be united today in Christ. The church is one spiritual body, one family of God. And we're moving in the same direction under one Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Do you think that way of the church? Or do you think of it merely as an organization and one that is splintered in all kinds of different directions nonetheless? Of course, we see the disunity of the church today in the world, but uh, the church as a whole, God's elect, are united in one faith. and with The church is not a, a group that you can opt in or opt out of uh, if you are one of God's people. The church is your family, and there is no other. You don't have the choice to opt in or out of your family that you're born into, do you? You have a mother and father and perhaps brothers and sisters, and you stick to them. You keep loving them. You don't uh, disown them and uh, completely reject them, even if you may have disagreements over many things. That's your family and always will be. And that's how you should think of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even more so, because if you belong to Christ, the church uh, is your home and your family in an even more deep and profound and permanent sense. The unity of the church and your unity with the church should be even stronger than that of your unity with your earthly family. As a Christian, one who's been born from above, 
you identify with the family of God in an even deeper way than you identify with your earthly family members. You have one Lord, one faith, and you stick with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You stand with them. You serve with them. You're going to be with them for all eternity. And so you certainly ought to make every effort to maintain that unity here and now. Let's pray that the Lord would give us that kind of appreciation for the church on earth and that we would grow more and more united in every way that's pleasing to the Lord. Well, then as we jump down to the end of the chapter, past all these names, to verses 28, to the end of the chapter, we see this beautiful reunion finally happen, this reunion that's been long awaited between Jacob and Joseph. It's a very moving scene, a very emotional scene. The Egyptian wagons were loaded down with Jacob and his family, They made their way on that long journey through that drought-stricken land on their way to their new home in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And when they got there, Joseph rushed out to meet them. And the anticipation is building uh, toward this reunion. So much time has passed. For 22 years, these men, father and son, have been robbed of their relationship. Joseph has been robbed of relationships with all of his family. And now at last, they're coming back together. And Joseph arrived, no doubt, in style. He's riding in a royal chariot. He probably had a huge entourage of servants going before him. It was probably a very, very impressive sight as he came to meet uh, his family and his father. Joseph must have looked magnificent in his appearance. But Moses doesn't really bother to tell us about that. We can assume that was the case, but as far as Moses is concerned, as far as the Spirit of God who inspired these words is concerned, that doesn't really matter. What matters is this beautiful reunion, this joyful and deep affection we see here as this father and son come back together. That's what he tells us about. We're told Joseph presented himself to his father Jacob and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Just wept. Didn't talk. Didn't say anything. There's not a word from Joseph for a good long while just weeping and embracing. All he could do was hug his dear old father and weep tears of joy. But then Jacob spoke. Jacob speaks up and he says, Oh, now let me die, for I've seen your face and know that you're still alive. These are words of joy. He's not saying, I want to die now, but he's saying, I am so happy 
Lord, you could take me right now. My life is completely um, satisfying and fulfilling. I'm ready. I could die in peace right this moment. It's interesting that Jacob says this right after finally meeting Joseph. Joseph, in this story, is a savior figure. He's the savior of God's people, a temporal savior. And so Joseph finally laying eyes on him, his savior, and that of all his family and people. He's so thankful. He's ready to depart. And that did remind me of the passage we read earlier about Simeon in Luke 2. The baby Jesus, the Savior, was brought into the temple. And Simeon, this godly old man, saw this baby and knew by the Spirit of God that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And Luke tells us, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jacob, in this passage in Genesis, beheld his his own son, who was the savior of his people temporarily. But Simeon beheld a greater son, the only begotten son of God. And he felt that he too could die in peace and with joy now because his savior and the savior of the world had come. A beautiful fulfillment we see here. May God grant us all that same peace and assurance by enabling us to behold and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. Finally, we see Joseph giving his family some counsel here, some advice, because they're about to meet Pharaoh, and that could have caused some problems since they were all shepherds. And the Egyptians did not care for shepherds. And so Joseph has some suggestions for how they are to speak to Pharaoh when they meet him. First, he says, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to tell him that you're shepherds and that you tend livestock and that you've brought along your flocks and herds and everything you own. For one thing, this would let Pharaoh know that Joseph's family is self-sufficient. They won't be a financial burden on Pharaoh. He doesn't have to shell out uh, anything to take care of them. They have what they need except land for grazing. And Joseph knew that would be good news to Pharaoh. Then he also tells them, when you meet Pharaoh, you're going to tell him what you do as well. And this will be a, uh, a way of letting Pharaoh know that Goshen will be the very best place for you to settle. Joseph felt that Goshen was the perfect place, for one, because it had good land for 
pasturing those many animals. But two, it had uh, geographical distance from the people of Egypt. It was far away from the populace who uh, didn't want to be around shepherds. This was the perfect place for them because they could be far away from uh, the ungodly culture of Egypt and the religion of Egypt. It was a win-win for the Israelites as well as the Egyptians who didn't want anything to do with these shepherds. So Again, we see the good, wise providence of God here. Israel is now going to be planted in this um, perfect setting and protected in this fertile land where they'll have all that they need physically. And more than that, they would not be polluted spiritually by the idolatry and ungodly ways of the Egyptians. This was a good place for them. This was a place where they could prosper and multiply and become rooted in their identity, their spiritual identity as God's people. And so the chapter ends on this note of God's goodness, his amazing goodness to his people. The Lord is so good to his people, to us, and he's so much better to us than we deserve. And we see that here in his goodness uh, to the people of Israel, but also to Jacob himself in reuniting him with Joseph. Think about that. The Lord is so kind to this elderly man here. He makes Jacob a happy man before he departs. After so much suffering and grief that he went through, so much bereavement, he thought he'd never be happy again. But God showed his goodness to him in this beautiful way. Such mercy, such tender-heartedness toward this man, Jacob. And of course, we see God's goodness here as he settles Israel in this way, in this good place for them where they can prosper physically and spiritually. God is truly good to his people. And he wants us to believe that. How many of the Psalms emphasize that to us over and over, the goodness of the Lord? And we can confess that, believe it, and pray it along with the psalmist and give praise to God. He wants us to believe in his goodness toward us. He wants us to rejoice in him and give him praise for that. He wants us to see his goodness in the lives of his people in Scripture. He wants us to see it in our own lives so that we will trust him too, more and more all our days. He wants our faith in him to be strengthened. Israel certainly needed to trust in the Lord for the future, for their future. From their perspective, it was very, it was very uncertain, their future. All they had to rely upon were God's promises and what they've seen so far unfolding of how God's goodness was at work in their lives. We too need to trust the Lord like that. We need to trust in his word. We don't know what the future 
holds. But we know that God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. And he's more faithful than we can even imagine to us. And he will continue to be that way for us in the future. Again, we don't know the future and the specifics, but we know the God who knows and who controls the future. And he calls us to trust in him. Keep trusting in him and his grace in all our circumstances. His goodness never fails. His steadfast love never ceases. Believe that. Trust in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would build us up in our faith. We ask you that you'd cause the word that we've heard even this hour to strengthen us and cause our trust in you to be increased. And in trusting you more, we pray that you would cause us to grow also in our love for you and in our service to you. We ask, us, uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.